Right on, right on. Did John say that last week? Right on, right on? He did not. I always try to get John to say, right on, right on. Okay, you don't know him very well. Acts chapter 11. Acts chapter 11 in your Bibles. Let's pray. Uh, Heavenly Father, we thank you tonight for the word of God. Thank you for the history, the record, the Lord, that which took place in the days that you uh, sent forth your Holy Spirit and you began this work in, in the world for your church. And Lord, we ask and pray that tonight we'd have understanding and wisdom, insight into the revelation of the knowledge of you. And then we might follow you and, and trust you and love you. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. As we've been studying through the book of Acts and looking at the, the history, and um, chapter 11 is one of those chapters that does not happen much in the New Testament. You, you get the accounting of what took place in chapter 10. Uh, this is the witness. And uh, as we've studied through this, really we come out of chapter 10 where, where Peter was called upon by Cornelius and his household. Uh, really, and it was it's stated in chapter 11 tonight that Peter was called upon and that Peter would have the, the word on how they could be saved. We didn't get that in chapter 10. And uh, I, I like these things that the Holy Spirit does in, in the record and the repetition. And we need that. We, we need to know the certainty of the words of truth that those that would come to us, that we would have an answer, we could answer the words of truth to those who want to know what these things are. Or if God sends us to somebody, that we would have an answer concerning Jesus Christ and, and what actually took place and and. Really, chapter eleven is is for me. It's uh, it's one of those chapters that states not only did the Gentiles get saved, and and you know it wasn't like Cornelius ran off and, and took the gospel and did whatever he wanted to do, but that the church in Jerusalem agreed that the Gentiles were saved, and, and this is this is the work of salvation. Now, we can jump right into verse 1. It says, The apostles and brethren who were in Judea heard that the Gentiles also received the word of God. Now, and and this, this, went, this went fast. By the time Cornelius, remember the Holy Spirit came upon them, they were water baptized, and Peter, with his witnesses of six, right, he took double the number of witness, and that that accounting or that record, that history, that the Gentiles, they were saved. Peter baptized them. It would kind of be like us getting invited to go to the LDS church, right? Like getting invited to go into the Mormon tabernacle in Utah, preaching the gospel unto those that were there, and they get saved, and then, or the Holy Spirit comes upon them as we preach the gospel, and then we water baptize them. You step out of that Mormon tabernacle, and you come out to those who who have held you know Christianity in in that this identity of Jesus Christ because the Mormons believe something different about Jesus. They actually teach that he is the spirit brother of of Lucifer. That God had two sons, and they they actually teach that their Jesus is created. If you went in, preached the gospel, and you came out and said, "We just baptized three thousand Mormons." This is the type of thing that happened. I don't think we always appreciate to the extent that the Holy Spirit went out of the way to give the witness that Gentiles could be saved. From the Jewish perspective, even the Jewish believers, they were not looking and thinking that that the Gentiles could be saved. If you baptized 3,000 Mormons, there would be many Christian leaders who would come and say, what were you thinking? You know they don't believe like we do. And then you'd have to give witness and testimony. That's what happened in, in chapter 10 and then into 11. So Peter came up to Jerusalem 
And then look at that phrase in the end of verse 2. Those of the circumcision contended with him. Now, you can just note this here in chapter 11, that this group of those of the, circum, uh, those of the circumcision describes those who believed that one had to become a Jew first, and then they could believe upon Jesus Christ. And so they're, they're what we commonly would call and refer to them later as the Judaizers. When Paul goes to the churches of Galatia, the Judaizers follow him around as he preaches Christ. He preaches the gospel. Those of the circumcision who believe that you must become a Jew before you can be saved, they follow behind him. And there's a contention later on, and Paul comes back, and that's Acts chapter 15. We'll be there in a few weeks, uh, Lord willing. And we'll look at that, uh, that contention. Now, I like that this is contended. Now, you might say, well, what, is, is every contention bad? Now, I know this about Christians. We don't like contention generally. Like if I say to somebody that somebody, I, they come and talk to me and so-and-so did this to me. You know what I say to him? Matthew 18, go to him alone, work it out. Or if it's a ministry leader and they're in charge of some aspect, and I said, you have to confront them, right? You have to contend with the issue. Well, this is what happens. There's contention. So those of the circumcision, the Judaizers, they contended with Paul, or excuse me, with Peter over what he had done. So they were far more willing to convert somebody to Judaism than they were to convert them to faith in Jesus Christ. And they were ready for a fight. And this isn't new. It's always gone this way. Uh, for Calvary Chapel in the beginning, you know, one of the things that I'm doing teaching through Acts this, this time around is I, I picked up Pastor Chuck's commentary on the book of Acts. And this is what happened for Calvary Chapel in Costa Mesa. It was, it's really Santa Ana, California. So really, you just, you, if you head right from Santa Ana to the ocean, you end up at Newport Beach. I mean, that's, that's the part of California that it is. And in the days in which the gospel was going forth and prayer and inviting people to church, the hippies started showing up. And lo and behold, as the hippies started showing up to Calvary Chapel and they were praying for them, they were sharing the gospel, and the hippies showed up, I, they, they bare feet, right? No deodorant, not bathing, uh, jeans that weren't washed. I mean, you, you do understand the whole idea of denim was you could have denim and would never have to wash it. That was the idea that it would basically take on your body oils and, and they lived that way. So there were those who were contending with Pastor Chuck in the beginning concerning all the hippies coming in. And I'll, I'll quote this here. He says, why do you suppose there are always those ready to challenge what God is doing? And usually this opposition happens when traditions are threatened. When the hippies began coming into our church with long hair, dirty jeans, bare feet, there was contention. Make them wash their feet and cut their hair before they come in here. When we begin singing, when we began singing the worshipful choruses God gave to these young people, there was contention over that. Now, you need to understand, when Pastor Chuck would meet these musicians, and they would, they would write a love song to the Lord. And in fact, one of the bands, one of the musical groups that really sort of signified what God was doing amongst that group, they called themselves Love Song. And they would, they would simply write these choruses, and then everybody, and, and, and I'm told, they would all be standing arm to arm, and they'd be swaying back and forth while they're, they're singing unto the Lord. There were those who contended with that. And the contention was, why did you change the music? Let's get back to our songs. Here's Pastor Chuck, and I, he says, I find it sad that even when it's clear God is working and leading in a new direction, people will contend over change. And, he, and he, here's he says, I've noted that those who contend the work of the Spirit are usually not the most devoted followers of the Lord. You rarely see them in prayer meetings, yet they want to challenge every decision the Lord has led you to make. Now, I like this. Again, Book of Acts, and they contended with Peter over the salvation that's come to the Gentiles. There were, there were so many people that were contending with Pastor Chuck. There, were, there would be those that would show up on the door. And as, again, thousands of people getting saved, 
And from time to time, it attracted every loony bin in, in California that, that wanted to tell them what they were doing wrong. And Pastor Chuck, he, he just all he can say is, God did this. They're baptizing thousands of people in the ocean, and the only explanation they can give is, God is doing this work. They would have visitors from other churches throughout the country come and say, what's the secret? What's going on here? And they would look at everything, and, and Pastor Chuck would always tell them, and, and he'd, he'd take them to the room where the, the men of the church were praying all night long unto God, and God was answering prayer, and God was it was a work of God. And then they'd leave and say, it's got to be the music. And so they started to adapt the music as they went back to their home churches. Well, there is, there is value in tradition, and some traditions are good, but there's also a danger to holding so tightly to those deep-seated things. We can begin, begin to put more emphasis on the tradition than our relationship with God. Now, this contention, and it, in verse 3, it's, they were saying unto him, you went into uncircumcised men and ate with them. Now, sharing a meal with someone at that time was significant. You need to understand, we would think, yeah, you ate with somebody. But from the perspective of the Jews and in and that day, if you shared a meal with somebody, you were identifying that you were one with them. In fact, the idea was this. The thought is we're eating from the same sustenance, that, that loaf of bread that is providing my sustenance, and if it provides your sustenance, we're, we're being nourished from the same source, therefore we're one with each other. So this isn't a, hey, you just ate with them. No, they're saying, Peter, you went into their house as a Jew, and you went into the house of unclean people, and you ate with them. You're, you're one with them. And being un- Peter, you're united together with them. And I think Peter was probably as alarmed that he went as anybody else was. If it wasn't for the miraculous way that God did this, I don't know if Peter would, would he was probably he would have probably been with the other group if he hadn't been there and saw what God had done. So Peter explained it to them in order from the beginning, saying, I was in the city of Joppa praying, and in a trance I saw a vision and and an object descending like a great sheet let down from heaven by four corners. It came to me, and when I observed intently and considered, I saw four-footed animals of the earth, wild beasts, creeping things, birds of the air, and I heard a voice saying to me, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But I said, Not so, Lord. For nothing common or unclean has at any time entered my mouth. But the voice answered me again from heaven, What God has cleansed you must not call common. Now this was done three times, and all were drawn up into heaven, again into heaven. At that very moment, three men stood before the house where I was, having been sent to me from Caesarea. Then the Spirit told me to go with them, doubting nothing. Moreover, these six brethren accompanied me. We entered the man's house. And he told us how he had seen an angel standing in his house who said to him, send men to Joppa, call for Simon, whose surname is Peter. Now, I pause there because look at the last phrase in 14. Who will tell you words by which you and all your household will be saved. Now, when we studied in chapter 10, and you can just glance back, the whole the whole record uh, of what Cornelius said, what any of the, any of the, communication that Cornelius had told Peter, that part was missing. And I I love this. I love now in the contention, more comes out. Now, I've been in a couple of these where you get a whole group of Christians together to sort out a matter over what's gone wrong. These these people are saying this, these people are saying that, and and this you get to Matthew 18 where you say you contend with one person, uh, or you believe they've sinned against you, you go to them, and he receives you, or you find out you're wrong, you work the whole issue out, you've received your brother, it's reconciled, it's good It's good to do. And sometimes that doesn't work, and you involve one or two others, and you get it all worked out. But then there's other times where you tell it to the church. And those meetings of like, hey, get everybody there who, who knows anything about what anybody had said, so we don't have to... We don't have to get any information from anybody else. All the witnesses are in the room. That's the type of contention that arose over what Peter did. And what comes out of that is this, is this clearer understanding. The Holy Spirit, right, again, if you think about it, told Peter to go, the work of the Holy Spirit. And then the other side of that was the angel had told Cornelius, 
And Cornelius is expecting that Peter will come with the words, really the words of salvation. Now, really what this is about when we come to chapter 11, it's the salvation of the Gentiles. That that salvation would come to the non-Jewish people through the hearing, the believing and receiving of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And a lot of things come out when you contend with something. You, you inspect it closer. You talk about it more. And that's what takes place. And, and be very honest, Peter now, with the whole group as they're contending, he's, he's squarely putting the blame on the Holy Spirit. God did this. And he, he, he simply says, the Holy Spirit ordered me to go with them. And he's not just saying that to say it. He, that's all he has. All he has to go with is what the Holy Spirit told him to do. Now this idea of the salvation would come uh, and, and you look at it, all I can come to is the way this interaction plays out. The Holy Spirit, who's God, right? He's, he's divine. Right? Don't ever miss that. He's not the force or the power or the energy, the, the, you know, like, like God sort of emanates a force of the Holy Spirit and he's to, offside of God. Because people talk like that. No, the Holy Spirit is God. Fully existing, right? The, the Spirit of God in the world, dwelling in the believers, Holy Spirit everywhere, fully God. And, and we need to understand that. And likewise, the instruction here that was given to Cornelius came forth from God. Uh, all we really have is the Holy Spirit did this. God did this, saving the Gentiles. And that's what comes out of the contention. Now, Peter's record, and, and verse 15 for me is a key verse. He says, and as I, and as I began to speak... The Holy Spirit fell upon them as upon us at the beginning. Now, without this record, I, I, and Peter, in, in, in the contention, all he's saying to him is, this was like the day of Pentecost. For those that were there, he's reminding them. He says, what just happened last weekend when we were out at Caesarea in the house of a Gentile, it was just like the day of Pentecost. Holy Spirit filled the house, came upon those who were there. Spirit came upon him, and I heard that group praise God in tongues. And they were worshiping and praising God. Now, roll this into things that have happened between Pentecost and Acts chapter 10 in Cornelius' house. When Philip went up to Samaria, preached the gospel, they called for Peter and John. Peter and John show up. And through the laying on of hands, the Holy Spirit was given. It's important for us to see that on the day of Pentecost, Holy Spirit came upon them without any human instrument in, in Samaria, laying on of hands. Now, I love this about, about the scripture, the doctrine of laying on of hands. In fact, by the time you study through your Bible, you get to Hebrews 6, where we're told that we move on from, you know, salvation, uh, from by grace, we, we move on from these teachings, right? And, and you grow up and you get mature and you, you have these things. One of the doctrines that we're to mature, and again, you don't keep repeating the doctrine of laying on of hands. It's a basic doctrine in the church. That through the laying on of hands, the Holy Spirit would be given. That through the laying on of hands, healing could come, you know, anointing with oil. These are basic doctrines. And, and when I come to this, Peter's statement, and again, if you listen to it, he, he's describing this work of God among the Gentiles that the Holy Spirit instructed him, the Holy Spirit fell upon him, and, and this comes to this. And yet today, you could talk about the baptism with the Holy Spirit in many churches today, and they would be upset with you using that term. If you look at 16, Peter says, Then I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John indeed baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Now, when Jesus introduced the helper, the comforter, the paraclete, when he introduced the Holy Spirit, he said that the Spirit of the Spirit would bring to remembrance the things that I've said to you. Is that water? Yeah, but my water's yeah, but that's water, right? Yeah. yeah, just leave it. Okay. No problem. Just grab your Bible and sit down and kick back. Okay. Open up. We're in verse 16. If it was coffee and cream and sugar, we might have to scrub it to get it out. But that's just water. All right. So in verse 16, he says, he remembered how it was that by the word of the Lord. And he goes back to Jesus' words when he introduces the Holy Spirit. 
And this is the work of the Spirit. When you see God do something and the Spirit brings to remembrance, and this will happen. Maybe you remember something that God did years ago and like, this this is what God did. Or you're reminded what God said to you. That's what happens for Peter. And so what he's watching, what he's seeing happen, he, he is drawn unto this, and it is the baptism with the Holy Spirit. He goes back to the words of Jesus, that it would be Jesus who would baptize with the Holy Spirit, and this is his description. This is his witness. The Gentiles were baptized with the Holy Spirit. And in equating that experience and the difficulty that many people will have with that. And and if you just simply say, I believe in the baptism with the Holy Spirit because the Bible does. And you go to Acts 11, 16. I believe that the baptism with the Holy Spirit is is for more than just the apostles. Go to Acts 11, 16. And you have the record. You You have distinctly, separately, and even separate from the laying on of hands, and, and you, I mean, you have a choice here if you're going to agree with God or you would fight against God. And uh, someone handed me a pamphlet. Uh, oh, it's probably about two months ago. And uh, and and it, all the pamphlet said basically is, do do I need the baptism with the Holy Spirit? And I open it up and and I enjoy this because I grew up in the Lutheran Church, and and these two who the husband and wife who were writing this booklet also grew up in the Lutheran Church, and they're saying. We had salvation, and it was always salvation, salvation. And it said, we were told in the Lutheran church, we, there, we, didn't, we didn't ever talk about the baptism with the Holy Spirit. And they came to the baptism with the Holy Spirit in the scriptures, and then they talked about their experience, and then they, then they just wrote this little pamphlet on the, on the necessity for all the believers to have the baptism with the Holy Spirit. Now, I like stuff like that because it agrees with the Bible. And they were baptized with the Holy Spirit. And, and whether they were Jews or Greeks or slave or free, that's what Paul writes to the church later on, we're one in Christ. The idea of how the Holy Spirit was given, and in that way, you, you have the Holy Spirit that comes upon you, uh, excuse me, comes in you at salvation when you're baptized into the body of Christ through the water baptism. But Jesus made a distinction when he says, Later on, that John truly baptized you with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. That's the beginning of the book of Acts. There is water baptism. Holy Spirit comes in you. That's why I believe in believer's baptism. You cannot tell the Holy Spirit what to do. We're not God's counselor. But by faith, when one believes and receives, they're born again. And that's why we do water baptism when we do. Believer's water baptism is what the Bible teaches and in seeing that, the Spirit comes in. Now here, this is distinctly in Peter's mind and by the Holy Spirit to remember that he says, this is the baptism with the Holy Spirit. What just happened in Cornelius' house, they were baptized with the Spirit. And you know what they did after that? Then they water baptized him. So some people get all hung up on, on order and things like that. Is that that wild kid in back? Very good. Oh, dad's got him. Yeah. <laughs> Strike that from the record. So let, let's let's face this. God God can do what he wants, when he wants, how he wants, anytime he wants to do that. Now, how many people have tried to tell God what he should do? Or God doesn't do things that way. And this is Acts 11. Now on to 17 as we... Keep going here tonight. If therefore God gave them the same gift as he gave us when we believed on the Lord Jesus, the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could withstand God? So Peter comes in with a preconceived notion until he sees that vision come down from heaven. I don't think Peter would have gone and did what he did that day if the things had not happened the way they did. And now he, he, his statement afterward is saying, God did this. What Jesus said he would do to baptize with the Holy Spirit, he says, I am not going to withstand God. And that's, and that's the record. You know, that this idea, if God is loving and he has thoughts of peace and not of evil to give you a future and a hope, uh, it should be noted that those who have sought to contend with God have always suffered for it. And Peter just says, well, I, I'm not going to contend with God. Now, verse 18, he says, When they heard these things, they became silent, 
and glorified God, saying, Then God has also granted the Gentiles repentance to life. Now, we can cruise right through the Bible, right? I don't know how you read in your prayer closet. Maybe you have a Bible reading list, and you read through the Bible every year, and you have a, on today, right? Whatever that day is today. What is today? September 4th. You, you turn in your checklist. What do you read on September 4th? You've got your Old Testament, your New Testament, and, and you check it off, and you read through it, and you just read. But do you ever stop and read in the way that I believe when the Spirit would just say, I want you to read this verse, and I want you to understand this verse, and I want you to receive that verse in your heart. I come to this place, and, and this, the Holy Spirit, in doing what he did, has brought the church in Jerusalem to this place, and, and they all agree together and say, then God has granted repentance of life unto the Gentiles. It's like taking John 3.16, which is probably the most famous verse in all, the, in all of Christianity, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish and have, but have everlasting life. It's like taking that verse and spending all day with it until the Lord just, he shows you the depth of his love and, and the length that he would go, how much he loved the world. That, and and you, just, you, you would spend that time and you come out of that time with the Lord on one verse and you're absolutely convinced that God loves the world and you've got to go and tell him all about Jesus. That's the involvement of the Holy Spirit. See, but if we do a checklist, right? Oh, I know that already. How many times do you come to a chapter of the Bible? If I said to you Psalm 23, you could all say to me, I know that Psalm. And in fact, we can put it in such a category where we don't let the words sink into our heart. I'm telling you Acts 11, this is, no, this is not shallow. It's not surface. And, and if, you just, if you just took the time in John 3, 16 and say, God, I want to understand your love for the world. And you just and you, you would now interact with God every time you came to your prayer closet with for God so loved the world. God teach me your love, show me your love. I want to experience your love. I want to know the height of your love, the depth of your love. I want to know I want to know why so many so many Christians sing love songs to you. Back to what happened with Calvary Chapel in the beginning. And you you change your whole focus not from how I can get through my daily life, but it's like I now into daily life, I want the love of God to be poured into my heart and then poured out of my heart. Again, just an example of how the word has its entrance by the Holy Spirit. Now, this is just the beginning of the, it's the opening of the door for the Gentiles. And here we sit now, 2,000 years later, having received the benefit of this wonderful open door that the gospel would be preached unto Gentiles and they would be saved and could be baptized with the Holy Spirit because I think all of us in the room are Gentiles. We're not Jewish by birth. And how the gospel then spread from one place to another, this this is the opening of the door. Now, brief history in, in Acts 11 because this shifts right there. 18 is the whole church agrees that Gentiles can be saved. God has granted them the gift of repentance. In 19, those that were scattered after the persecution of arose over Stephen, they traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch. So Phoenice, right, if you're reading in your King James, uh, this is the area in modern-day Lebanon. So this, this is outside of Israel. This is from Caesarea where Cornelius took place. This is probably another 80 miles up the coast or so, 60 to 80 miles up the coast. This is now, again, it's the place where, now that's definitely not a Jewish area. And then Cyprus is that island out in the Mediterranean. And then Antioch is another probably 120 miles above uh, Phoenicia, and it's inland just a little bit. And that's where, if you see it, those that were scattered. So this goes back to Acts 7, and those that went forth were preaching the word to no one but the Jews only. Now, I'll just lay this out. God uses that persecution to scatter the church. <clears throat> and what are they doing? Now, the word there for preaching 19 is it's a, I think I have it in my notes here. It is a Greek word, uh, laleo. And it literally means to speak. So if you thought that you had to go forth with, I I can't tell anyone anything because I don't know how to preach the gospel. 
All they're doing is going forth and speak. Can you open your mouth and talk to people? That's what they did. They opened their mouth and they spoke. The word is so basic that it goes down to your uttering. Yeah. How do you know they were talking? I heard them. That's the word. And they're preaching. So, so the English translators put that into preaching. But I just simply say they're talking with the Jews about the word of God. And then 20 describes some of them from Cyprus and Cyrene. When they came all the way up to Antioch, they spoke to the Hellenists. So they're not just talking to the Jews anymore, but now they're evangelizing. It's the, the, the word there in 20 is a different word. Same English word, preaching. So they are actually going forth to evangelize, to tell the good news or the glad tidings of the gospel. And, and really, we would identify this. This is the first outreach that we know of in the book of Acts that is specifically for the Gentiles. They are going forth with the intent to preach the glad tidings of the gospel of Jesus Christ to the Gentiles. A direct outreach initiated by the church. And we don't even know who these guys are, just men of Cyprus and Cyrene. What happened in Antioch as they preached the word of God, the hand of the Lord was with them, verse 21. Great number believed and turned to the Lord. History, right? Antioch in history, and you look at this, and, and it, it's, it's, where it's where it's at. It, it's the, not the Antioch in, um, over north of, what is that, modern-day Turkey. This is more modern-day Syria. There's two Antiochs as we study the book of Acts. This Antioch was the third most, most important city in the world at that time. See, we lose perspective sometimes, don't we? We read through the book of Acts, and you think Antioch was... As small as Nazareth. 25 people live there. Do you realize Nazareth has always been a small town until modern times? When Jesus was born there, small town, everybody knew who he was. This Antioch, third most important city of the world, after Rome and Alexandria, Antioch was on the banks of the Orontes River, center of the worship of the goddess Daphne, who according to legend was a beautiful maiden with whom Apollo fell in love before she turned into a laurel tree. Her temple was five miles outside of the city. And get this, right? The worshipers, right? Those that would come to worship at the temple, the temple priestesses were prostitutes who nightly would reenact the worshipers. They'd they'd reenact this affair of Apollo and Daphne under the laurel trees. That's the environment. That's where the gospel goes forth. God chose in that, that, that church that, that from that point forward, from Antioch, they're going to send out really the word of God to the Gentile world. That's Antioch. The hand of the Lord was with them. And that's the key. Now, where it says a great number believed and turned to the Lord, the, the hand of the Lord being with them, it's a reference to salvation. Isaiah 59.1 says, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened, that it cannot save, neither is the ear heavy, that it cannot hear. This is, this is a reference to God's saving in, in Antioch. Now, as they turn to the Lord, that's Strong's word, uh, excuse me, Strong's definition, right, of that word. The word is epistrepho, and here's the definition from Strong's. To revert, literally or figuratively, figuratively or morally, come, go again, convert, return, turn about, turn again. Now, I say it to us this way. We need to understand, those that were in Antioch amongst the Gentiles, they turned from worshiping Daphne to worshiping the true and living God. We need to understand that so that we don't go out into the world now and say, oh, they, these people, they, they do this. Now, I talked about the Mormons, right? Just put them in front of you to say what, a, what an uproar that would be if you went in there and, and baptized them and said they got saved and really prove it. That's what we'd get. But what if God does a work, a true work of Jesus Christ to save amongst the Muslims that have come to live right in our towns? Grand Forks, Fargo, it's the same thing. And, and what would we say? What are we really looking for? What, what we'd be looking for is that they would turn from worshiping and serving Allah in the way that they do, that they would be turned, they would be saved and then turned to worship 
the living God according to what's revealed in Scripture. Now, that's Thessalonica. That's what's described. The Word of God came to Thessalonica and they received it as it is, the Word of God, and it worked effectively in them who believed it. And what was the evidence that the Word of God worked effectively and powerfully as they heard the gospel? Well, this is the record. This is this is First Thessalonians 1.9. They themselves declare concerning us what manner of entry we had with you, how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. Now, I love this as we go through the study of the book of Acts. From 11 forward, and it begins right away in 11, it's subtle if you don't know what's happening, but if you, if you look at it, it's all there. The hand of the Lord with those who shared the word, who preached Christ, those that believed and received, they turned from the worship of idols. They stopped worshiping Daphne. They stopped going to the temple prostitutes. They stopped doing that. We have a hard time imagining a worship system like that. Think of how we grew up, grew up here in the, in the upper Midwest or even in, in the United States, and we'd have a hard time thinking there would be a temple to worship another God that does that. But they knew it all too well. See, but yet we think, oh, they'll never turn. They'll never change. But when the word of God came forth, that's what took place. The epistrapho is they turned again to serve the living God. Verse 22 says, the news of these things came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem. Now, you catch this? The word spread quickly of what happened in Cornelius' house. By the time this now progresses, and Antioch, third most, most important city of the world. You think, you think that that's a small thing or the scope is off? This is major. The word comes back to the, to the church in Jerusalem, and what do they do? They sent Barnabas to go out to Antioch, and they heard the whole report. It said, you go out as far as Antioch, find out what's going there. Third most important city of the world, and God does a work there? You're going to know about it. So they, they choose Barnabas. Not an apostle, and really as we've been introduced to him, they chose to send forth Barnabas, whose name, right, Barnabas, that's not his name. That's the name that he earned by what his character is. He's a son of encouragement. They chose to send really a peacemaker rather than a critical one who would have contended concerning can Gentiles be saved. So Barnabas discovers the report of great revival in Antioch are true. And he saw the marvelous work of God's grace. You look at 23. He says, when he came and had seen the grace of God, he was glad. Now, I get people's perspectives all the time. A lot of times I don't like people's perspectives. But they're, they're certainly going to tell me because I'm the pastor. Right? That's, and, and frankly, that's how it goes. And so a lot of times I get people's perspectives. Look at... Son of encouragement. He shows up, and what does he see? He sees the grace of God. He doesn't start challenging them and say, did you really get saved? Now, I, I kid you not. We preached the gospel unto our children from a young age, even before they knew anything. We were always telling them about Jesus. Before they even knew how to speak, walk, anything, we're telling them about Jesus. We're because we're living our lives, and we would read the Bible, and we'd read books, and, and we'd always be talking to them about Jesus. And they all received Jesus Christ from a young age. And in fact, the youngest, younger because of the siblings who were saying, you need Jesus, you need Jesus. It wasn't even us preaching Christ unto him. It was his sisters. And when there was a family in church who found out that that he, from a young age, they were they were around then, and we say, Josiah prayed to receive Jesus today. And they said, you've got to be careful over false conversions. And we're like, wow. So we're not worried about that one bit. And so what we saw was the grace of God, that his heart was open and tender. And we said, we're not even concerned if now's the time because we believe we're going to continue in this. We're not coming to this as this is the end. For us, this is, this is just our life. We're going to receive Jesus Christ we're going to walk with him. We're going to do this. We're going to keep telling him about Jesus. And so you catch my perspective. And so when, when you wouldn't believe the things that, that a pastor's wife hears from people who think they can tell her anything. 
and people do. And so that that there were two, right? A mother and daughter combo who wanted to challenge my son's receiving of Jesus at a young age. Now, I, I just say that because that's not Barnabas. You know what I want? I want Barnabas to come along, an encourager that says, look at the grace of God. Look what God, look at the work God began to do in your, in your child from a young age. When Paul writes back to Timothy, what does he say? He says, your, Timothy's, your, your mom and your grandma have been reading the Bible to you from a young age. You've had faith, Timothy. I showed, when Paul showed up and preached Christ to Timothy, Timothy received. And he says, that seed, that word of God was with your mom. That faith was with your mom and your grandma. How important these things are. And so Barnabas looks and sees the grace of God. He's glad he encourages them. You know what I do with people who are, who are sharing the gospel with their young children? We've had families come into church. Most of the salvations in church happen in children's ministry. I always encourage people, you want to lead, pe- lead people to the Lord, start serving in children's ministry. Because you'll teach the Bible and you come across these passages and you ask the children, do you want to be saved? Do you, do you want? And I, and I have the record the men of the church are recognizing we have a lot of children right now in children's ministry who aren't saved. So what do the men start doing on Saturday nights? Let's get to prayer. And I kid you not, within three months, we had four salvations in children's ministry. Now, why do I say things like that? Because when you see that perspective and the grace of God and was glad, whenever I hear of somebody turning to the Lord, right, no matter what age they're at, you know what I am? I'm glad. You know, and this is that part. This is what takes place with, with Barney here, with Barnabas. And what does he say to them? He encouraged them all with purpose of heart that they should continue with the Lord. He does not enroll them in, in seminary. Right? He does not give them, okay, now reason this through with me in your mind. What does he say? Purpose in your heart to do what? Continue with the Lord. Now that word continue, I think if you're reading in the King James, says to cleave unto the Lord. Hold tightly to him. Your purpose in your heart, your heart, right? Your heart can hold you, right? I'll say, I'll quote Pastor Chuck here. The purpose of your heart is stronger than the decision of your mind. It's easy to reason away something you've only decided in your mind, but when you purpose in your heart, that purpose is firm and steadfast. Remember Daniel? How he purposed in his heart not to defile himself with everything of Babylon. And in that purpose of heart, when they were confronted that if they would not eat the, the delicacies, the, the meat, the wine, if they wouldn't eat the stuff offered to idols, that, that they, they would suffer for that. And, and Daniel says, test us. right? Not in a taunting, rebellious way. He simply laid it out. And they prayed, and they ate only vegetables. And what did God do? God caused them to get fat on vegetables. They became plumper and looked healthier than all the other young men. And this, this is that purpose of heart. Now back to Barnabas, 24 describes him, says he was a good man full of the Holy Spirit and faith. And many people were added to the Lord. Now, I love this. And when I study Acts 11, I look at all these little clues that give insight into what took place. So Barnabas is a good man full of the Holy Spirit. He saw the grace of God. He's encouraging them. Son of encouragement is encouraging others. You choose wisely who you send. And he, being full of the Holy Spirit, as he's encouraging them to continue with the Lord and keeps talking to them, more people get added. More people get saved. And all he's doing is encouraging them to continue with the Lord. There's a lot of things that can happen in church, right? When, when you come to church service and, and, and God's working in your midst and, and you're talking about the Lord and you're sharing these things and then, you, and then you go back to work on Monday and they say, how was your weekend? Oh, it's okay. Or do, you, or do you tell them, we worship the living God. We gathered together. We prayed with each other. Or even this, we're waiting for Jesus to come back. Something like that. If you, if you put that in the forefront, That phrase, a great many people were added to the Lord. Not added to the church of Antioch, not added to Barnabas. They're joined together with the Lord. This adding is not an addition, like we would say one plus one. This adding is they were joined together unto the Lord. 
And that's what took place. I love this kind of stuff, the clues that are in there. So what's Barnabas do? He leaves, goes to Tarsus to seek for Saul. That's verse 25. Barnabas saw the grace of God. He sees all the Gentiles saved. He's encouraged them. The more he encourages them, the more that are getting saved. They're being added to the Lord. And so he, he goes and seeks for help. He thought of Paul. He sees the work going on in Antioch. And he's like, he thinks of who can, who can help in this work. And he goes back to the hometown of, of Paul. And he goes back to Tarsus and he seeks him out. And when he found him in 26, it says he found him, brought him to Antioch. So it was that for a whole year, they assembled with the church and taught a great many people. The disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. Notice, they're not preaching the gospel over and over to the same people who are saved. They're teaching them. Once people have come to a saving faith in Jesus Christ, they need teaching. I grew up in a particular church that the sermons were always from one of the four gospels, and yet it never brought you to the place of receiving the gospel, but we, we were not taught the rest of the Bible. I only thought there were the last four chapters of Revelation because the rest of Revelation was never taught. I didn't know that all these books in the Old Testament were, were teachable because the church I went to never taught any of them. Now, I find this great importance, and we see it right away. And again, back to the beginning. When people are saved, what do they need? Teaching. Teaching the Word of God. What does God's Word say? Uh, I do think I have, let's see, let me see what I got in here for notes. Oh, and, and this isn't just unique to that. We'll find that in Corinth. This is, this is Acts 18, which is Corinth. Paul continued there a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. And, and that's really what's repeated. Now, I love this about church. One of my favorite things to do when I go to church service is that time of being taught the Word of God. I, I, I'll even do this. I will listen to teachings the rest of the week. What a, what a technology. I don't know if you remember the days when you couldn't find the teaching of God's Word. If you didn't go to church and get the sermon, right, you didn't have it. Or then some churches started producing cassette tapes. And then some started producing CDs. And then, lo and behold, when the Internet came out, then churches began to post their teachings on the Internet. And now we could listen to all the teachings we want to, but do they think it's made the church any, any better or any more well-taught? Not everywhere. The teaching of God's Word. Now, what takes place after that in 27, in those days, prophets came from Jerusalem to Antioch. So the gifts of the Spirit, those that are called prophets came uh, one by name, Agabus, he stood up and showed by the Spirit there was going to be a great famine throughout all the word, world. Now, this Agabus, later on, when Paul's traveling back to Jerusalem, he will take the Apostle Paul's belt and he will bind himself and he'll say, the Holy Spirit says that the owner of this belt will be bound in Jerusalem. And so they start pleading with Paul not to go up to Jerusalem. Agabus is a true prophet. He, the Holy Spirit shows him these things. He's prophesying in Antioch about this famine that's going to go throughout the whole world. And then if you'll catch Luke's record as he writes about it, he says, which also happened in the days of Claudius Caesar. Now, you can look up in history, and there were actually four famines in the days in the reign of Claudius Caesar. And one of those famines greatly affected Judea. Now, the disciples that were in Antioch, when they had this prophecy of Agabus, they, according to their ability in verse 29, they determined to send relief to the brethren dwelling in Judea. And here begins what later on, as we study the book of Acts, the Apostle Paul from time to time will collect money from the Gentile church to take back to the Jewish church who is suffering in Jerusalem. And think about it, in Jerusalem, they're not a part of Judaism. And so who's going to care for them? Well, it's the church, the Gentile church that actually gives back to them. And this began in Acts 11. So they did this also, verse 30, and they sent it to the elders by the hands of Barnabas and Saul. Quite a different time now that when Barnabas 
excuse me, when Saul goes back up to Jerusalem. Remember the last time he showed up in Jerusalem? They didn't believe he was a brother. Now he's going to come back with a gift and give an account of all the things that God is doing amongst the Gentiles. How many people are turning to the Lord? And he shows up and says, here's a gift. Now, uh, from this point forward, really when we get to Acts 13, we're going to, we're going to see how much more the Holy Spirit has planned than what he started in Acts 10 and 11. Just how much more God so loved the world, right? Now, I talked about spending all that time in love, but do you really understand God's love for the world? And you can go through right through every country. Hey, the church doesn't think like this very well anymore. There was a time, both in the United Kingdom, right? Scotland, there, were, there was a time... With the church in Scotland, they sent missionaries everywhere in the world. There was a time for the church in England. They sent, they sent missionaries everywhere in the world. There was a time in America where America sent missionaries everywhere in the world. Now, do you catch this? Has God changed? For God so loved the world. And, and what is it that, that any one of us would take time with the Lord and say, Lord, is there a part of the world that does not have the gospel? Is there any place in the world that does not, has not heard the gospel? And I love those who come to that simple understanding. It begins in Acts 11, but it never ends. That's what I love about the book of Acts. There's no closure. There's no, and it ended. Acts 28, open-ended. And those that have believed that and received that work of the Holy Spirit, that through the preaching of the gospel, the Gentiles would be saved. God's interest in loving the world to send out servants to preach Christ, that, that describes what we call missionary work. When God does it and God sends them out. Aren't you glad somebody came here? Aren't you glad the gospel, somewhere, somebody was sent that where you were living, can I appreciate this mostly because the church that I went to, remember I told you, they did not teach that you would be born again or that you needed to receive the gospel. Aren't you glad that there are those who preach the gospel and say, would you like to receive forgiveness of sin? Would you like to receive new life in Jesus Christ? So that's all I have for tonight. So Lord bless you. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the history, the record how your Holy Spirit saved Gentiles, how through the preaching of Christ Jesus, the sharing of the word, the encouraging one another, how faith turned, how, how they turned from idols to serve the living God, how you did this work in the beginning. Lord, keep us in you with ears open to your spirit that you could send us forth, that we would listen to you and we would share the word of God and others could be saved. And this we pray in Jesus' name, amen. So God bless you guys. Um, I will be back up next week. I have no intention and plan of sending John up every other week. So that was just off for one week. Yes, Abby? I am not ready for communion tonight. We'll do it next week. You good with that? How come you didn't ask me before when we could could have got ready? Oh, I didn't either. All right. Very good. Hey, God bless you.